Welcome to Strings Attached, the latest podcast on the PointCast Network. Strings Attached is a new podcast that focuses on demystifying topics that have been labeled taboo and complex. The show connects us to hard truth. Sometimes these truths challenge opinions we have, asking us to question why we believe the things we do. I encourage listeners to remain open-minded and welcome introspection as a path towards liberation and aligned action. Remember, the ability to change is available to us all. On today's show, we continue our series on the occupation of Palestine, this time focusing on the direct connection between stealing land and stealing culture. We'll learn about how Israel's apartheid against Palestinian people systematically attempts to erase Palestinian food culture and identity. I'm your host, Sasha Estrella Jones, and with me on today's show, is Palestinian organizer, foodie, and vegan cook, Hadiya Mashal. Welcome to the show, Hadiya. Thank you for having me. It's a pleasure to be here, and I'm so excited to have this conversation with you. Yes, I am very excited to have this conversation. I think when we talk about Israel's apartheid and settler colonialism of Palestine, we often don't mention how that corresponds to the appropriation of Palestinian food. So I'm looking forward, I know you're very knowledgeable and you also love food. Uh, so I'm looking forward to getting there. I think before we do that though, as a means to contextualize the stolen land part, I would like to read directly from Amnesty's International's report uh, mm-hmm. that looked on the land appropriation laws and policies of Israel. Sounds good, I think that's great. Perfect, I know, you know some of our listeners have some knowledge about this, some not at all. So this will make sure we're on an equal playing field. Mm -hmm. What I'm about to read is from uh, Amnesty International's report titled Israel's Apartheid Against Palestinian. This is directly from section 5.4.1, Land Expropriation Laws and Policies. I'll be reading from pages 113, 114, and 115. That's for anyone who'd like to look this up yourself you clearly know that it's available to you. Until 1948, the total land purchased by Jewish individuals and institutions in Mandate Palestine amounted to about 160,000 hectares, constituting around 6.5 of its total area. Palestinians owned about 90% of the privately owned land in the territory. At that time, Jews comprised around 30% of the population and Palestinians around 70. Within the relatively short period of just over 70 years, a deliberate Israeli state policy has reversed the situation, often using brutal means to ensure Jewish-Israeli control over resources. Three main pieces of legislation that made up the core of the Israeli land regime and played a major role in this process are one, the absentee property law, also known as the transfer property law of 1950, That's what we'll be primarily talking about on today's show. Two, the Land Acquisition Law of 1953. And three, the British Land Acquisition for Public Purposes Ordinance of 1943. In September of 1948, following the proclamation of statehood, the Israeli Provincial State Council enacted emergency regulations to take over properties of Palestinian refugees and internationally displaced persons. In 1950, the Absentees Property Law regulated the question of property of Palestinian refugees. Under this law, 
Israeli appropriated between 420,000 to 666,000 hectares of land. According to the UN Consolation Commission for Palestine, UNCCP, Israeli took over 4.45 million denims of land in private ownership, 59,000 apartments and houses, 11,000 businesses, 6,246 bank accounts, and vehicles and other properties. So that's just straight out from the Amnesty International report. But I think it's only right that we start there. And mind you, that's only from the first two years after Israel started its apartheid regime and settler colonialism in Palestine. Yeah, it's just so disgusting to hear those numbers because, again, they're such low volume compared to actual Palestinians displaced. And again, like it just kind of contextualizes Palestinians in terms of like their property, you know, and like what they left behind. But it's what they had to do, you know, like when people talk about when we talk about Israel and Palestine, like people need to understand that these villages were like pillaged, you know, it's it was one day to the next or it was like, oh, we know that the village over Israelis are taking over. We need to go now. Like people still have keys to their homes and most Palestinians, when you go into their homes, you will see that they have keys of sorts in their homes because for us, it just symbolizes, you know, that we will return at some point, even though for generations we haven't been able to, um, you know, Palestinians often, you know, we think about when we die, we want to be buried in our homeland. And it's like three, four generations at this point that has been again, displaced. So it's really, really sad. I think it's a really critical that you mentioned there are people behind these numbers because so often we can get boggled down in the numbers, which do matter. And for the purpose of this, I wanted to contextualize. But also, you know, for instance, when it said in the report, 59,000 apartments and houses, 59,000 apartments and houses, there were people who were living in every single one of those apartments mm -hmm. and houses. There mm -hmm. were over a half a million Palestinians who were forcibly removed from their homeland and with them, their story that they carry. Exactly. And that so much because of that gets lost. You know, when I was preparing for this, you know, to talk about food and, you know, apartheid and occupation, you know, you think about how many generations removed you are and like how much has gotten lost in that time. When I was in Palestine in 2014, um, I had this like incredible dish. It was called Kidra, but I never had it before. I never had it before. I never even heard about it before 2014 when I went to Palestine. And when I had it, obviously it was delicious. I was like, oh my God, yes, exposure to my culture, my land, my people. But also I was like, oh, this is so sad. Like I never knew about this food because again, generationally that knowledge has been lost. Like my grandma was born and raised in Palestine. So was my grandfather. I'm talking about my mom's side right now. Um, and my grandma left when she was 16, when she got married. And my grandfather left, I think, early teens to go to Kuwait so that he can, you know, like make money, have a better life, et cetera. 
Um, but I'm like, that was, again, three generations. My mom was born in Kuwait. You know, she went back often with her siblings every summer, but she didn't get to live there. And then me and my siblings, we were born here in the U.S. And so, again, just generations of removal from your land and from your like food culture and all that. And so, you know, even for me as someone who's plant based, I have conversations with my grandma all the time about food. You know, as you can imagine, they cannot <laughs> like, know the fact that I don't eat meat. They're just like completely like what, how, why, protein, everything. And, uh, you know, I was like, Teta, Teta is what I call my grandma. Teta, what did you guys eat when you lived in Palestine? You know, like how often did you have meat? And she told me. She's like, maybe every two weeks, you know, maybe. Oh, wow. Yeah. She was like, first of all, you have to, you raise these animals and you slaughter them when you want meat. So it's not like, oh yeah, you just go to the grocery store and you pick some up. Like, no, we're talking about like, this is the forties, the fifties in Palestine and villages in Palestine. You know, we're not talking about cities. Um, she was like, yeah, it was very rare because again, it's also expensive, you know, these animals are part of your family too. The way that people live in Palestine, their homes, they live in like the top part. And then there's like kind of a basement part. And that's where you leave your animals. Like they literally live in your home with you. It's just like a separation, a separate entrance. Um, so oftentimes I think about that and how heavily we eat meat now in, uh, in Palestinian food. Um, you know, to the point that when I go to like gatherings, people are like, oh my God, I didn't know. What are you going to eat? And it's like, I have like salad and maybe rice that I can eat. <laughs> you know, if they didn't cook the rice in like a meat stock. Um, but again, it just reminds me that over time, the way that globalization impacts culture is so alive and well, and so much again, gets lost because of that. You know, I think so often. Sorry, just to say that because we live in a global world where meat is like highly consumed, that has impacted all of our cultures. And I'm like, and Palestinian culture is not the only one that I'm sure has, you know, has so much meat now. I'm sure many other cultures are the same way. So go ahead. And I think there's no, and I think that has to be directly related to being forcibly removed because when you have to leave your home, you're not now worried about, oh, how am I going to gather all my animals and take them on a journey where I have no clue where it's going? Yeah. It's how am I going to protect my family, take a couple of our possessions, if we even are able to, because a lot of people didn't think they were going to be gone forever. Yeah. And what that means to now live or be forced to live, I should say, in a land that is not what you've made home and to try to make your food work around that sacrifices have to be made if you don't have the animals that you for years were used to tending to yeah. you have to switch to what's convenient exactly and it's like and it's so funny you say that because as again i was prepping for this i was like there are some foods that to me seem like so arab american because again my mom she was just trying to make do with like, oh, this is like American food and my kids wouldn't eat it. But like, I don't know this. We don't make this, you know, like peanut butter and jelly on pita bread. I grew up eating that. Like we did not eat it on toast, like hot dogs on pita bread too. You know, like you would, uh, 
cut the the piece in half and then like roll it up and we would put ketchup and mustard on it but again it's like it's like this american arab thing and like burgers we never had regular burgers my mom would make kefta it's like seasoned meat patties again stuff it into pita bread everything was in pita bread yeah yeah and then like make fries with cumin you know and again that's like not the way that people prepare it here but it's how my mom may do with you know trying to like consolidate her culture with the one that she was kind of like forced to take on and i think with that i want to keep going on because with what people think of as Palestinian food. I often find, especially here in the States, when we think of Arab food, we think Israeli food, you know, so we're like, oh, Israelis, they have hummus, they have falafel, et cetera, et cetera, which, you know, disclaimer, falafel and hummus were around before 1948, which Israel marks as its creation. But I want to spend some time just talking about that. Yeah, I mean... It's, it's really a sad thing to think about because I think so many of our foods are seen as like Israeli, especially in a Western context. Um, you know, like when you go to the grocery store, there's like Israeli couscous, like that's called maftoul. You know, to this day, my, my grandma still makes maftoul for us. You know, it's... Um, it's like a wheat that you cook down and whatever. Um, Lebna. Lebna is like, you know, a yogurt. It's yogurt that has like a lot of the moisture removed from it. And so it's like creamy. You put it on your sandwiches and stuff. Eat it with pita bread, you know. Got a <laughs> shout out my girl, pita bread. We love her. Um, <laughs> again, it's just seen as like this Israeli food, shakshuka. Shakshuka is not Palestinian. It's like a North African, uh, you know, egg and tomato dish. But it is something that I think people in the West associate now with being Israeli. And what's so interesting about it is like Israelis have managed to steal our food, but also like elevate it in the way that Americans like to eat, you know, like I'll see people posting like brunch, right? And they're brunching at these Israeli establishments, you know, that have like the nice aesthetic, you know, they like plate their dishes a certain way, you know, they do their little fusion stuff that Americans love and they just like eat right up into it. But like, I don't feel like you find Arab or Palestinian establishments that are like that, you know, that provide kind of this like nice dining experience, like a lot of Arab restaurants, and you know, you grew up in Bay Ridge, like you see how they are. They're just kind of like, oh, you know the owner, you go in, you grab some food, you take it to go. Oh, their rotisserie chicken is really good. I don't feel like feeding my kids today. You know, I'm gonna just go buy that, get some garlic sauce, call it a day or like shawarma. Like you don't get, you know, the true like Palestinian meals that we eat. And I feel like there's such a disconnect between Palestinian food and the way that Americans like perceive our food, you know, I think it's like very simplistic ways of thinking about it. Like when they can recognize that it's not Israeli, it's like for them, Palestinian food is like hummus, falafel, shawarma. And it's like, that's like not even the tip of the iceberg when it comes to Palestinian food and flavors and just like how exquisite they are. And, you know, again, there's just this huge, disconnect and there's this way that Israelis get to like take this credit for Palestinian food 
but having like no respect obviously for Palestinian people for you know where it came from and just claiming it as their own I think in the ways that Americans view Israeli food almost as like a fine dining experience or an experience to be consumed via social media yeah. and that dictates how they want to eat also enables them in a very parallel way to look at Palestinian food as second class in the same way Palestinians are treated as second class citizens. Yeah, yeah, which is again just so interesting because Israelis make Palestinians out to be like these savages, like barbarians, like blah, 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 but you know, we'll steal our food, our culture, our you know our dress like you know they try to take like the trees as their own like our music our dapka and it's like you say all these things about palestinians right but then you want to be them in like literally every aspect and it's just sad it's like i don't blame you because if i wasn't palestinian i would want to be palestinian too you know <laughs> but you know it's the way that they go about it in this way that just erases palestinians and i think that's the most like hurtful part of it you know when i see people po post you know at an israeli restaurant or something um i'm so quick to call it out i'm just like you know i'm so disappointed that you didn't look into the origins of the food that you're eating or like who owns this restaurant and you are just like taking these beautiful photos of these foods and not realizing that literal Palestinians had to die for you to disconnect Palestinians from their food and also now eat that as like an Israeli food. And again, it's like, and people I think sometimes think I'm extreme when I say things like that, but I'm like, no, if we're talking about history, if we're talking about what actually happened, that is what it is. Like that is how cultural appropriation happens. Like that is how you kill a culture, you know? It's funny when people label truth speakers, as I like to think when you're just literally stating facts, extreme or radical, I'm like, well, look at history, wasn't it? just those things isn't the displacement and apartheid of people extreme and radical one of the things i want to touch back on what you said because if you don't see the parallels in this i'm going to shake my listeners to seeing it everything you said about how israel has appropriated so much of not only palestinian food but palestinian identity as a whole it relates so disgustingly well to what you see of the appropriation of black culture in America. Mm -hmm. And I think oftentimes when Americans talk about Palestine and Israel, it's made to seem like it's overly complex that we cannot understand it. And it's systematically made to seem that way, yeah. but yet we can understand the appropriation. And I mean this for my folks of color who are listening on here, we can understand how our cultures are appropriated and feel upset about that and feel anger and feel passion to claim our cultures and not allow, you know, black folk have been doing hoop earrings way before it was cute to wear the mm -hmm. bandanas around that, you know, quote unquote gang thugs wore, black and brown thugs wore. Now it's cute to wear mm -hmm. music, et cetera. And this can go on and on. We can understand that. 
But yet when we talk Palestine and Israel, nope, too complex, can't understand it. Yeah. And I think it's just part of it is that Western ignorance when it comes to things that like are not completely straightforward. I'm like, yeah, like I don't think it's unfair to say that things are complex when it comes to like Palestine and Israel, because I'm like, there are many things that happened that allowed for this occupation for Israel to be created. I'm like, you know, first of all, pogroms in like Europe that persecuted Jews, you know, a Zionist movement that happened in the 1890s. There's uh, the Jewish, uh, the, the Ottoman Empire falling in World War One. There is this British loyalty to creating a an Israeli state, you know, a Jewish state that is for Jewish people only. Those things, of course, like they're complex, but I'm like, they're not undigestible. And I think Western, sometimes in the West, people make it seem like it's just so you can't digest all of these things. But I'm like, we can't understand. We've always taken history like our whole entire lives. Like we can see that different things happened that resulted in a big thing happening. It's how we talk about all global issues, you know? Oh, these were the things leading up to the civil war. And these were the big things that triggered the civil war. We can, we can comprehend it. I think Americans choose to be blissfully ignorant when it comes to topics, especially pertaining like the Swana region. And when I say Swana, I'm talking Southwest Asia and North Africa. People see us as being barbarians. Like, I truly believe that. You know, I, I think the way that people talk to me shows me that all the time. Oh, Hadil, you're so well-spoken. What, what did you expect me to be? Not well-spoken? Like, you're so educated. Oh my God, you know. Just all of these things that show the way that they think about my people and that I am different from that. Oh, I'm smart. Oh, I have You're an exception. Yeah, I'm an exception. And it's like, no, I'm not an exception to my people. Like, we have always provided this, you know? Um, so, yeah, I just think the way that Americans can choose to be ignorant about certain topics, especially those that are, like, more far removed from them, is a very American thing, <laughs> if we're being honest. Unfortunately... It is, but what I'm hoping to do with this series is to combat that because if you yeah. can't, you know, tune in very quickly to a podcast that kind of lays it all out there for you, like you don't have to Google, you don't have to read a book. I'm not asking you, although if you want to, you can read the Amnesty International Report, <laughs> but if you don't want to go through all almost 300 pages, you don't have to, but it's still not an excuse, like you said, to be bliss blissfully ignorant. I don't want to leave, though, on like that note, because yes, all that's true. But yeah. I think it's also important that when we talk about Palestinians and Palestinian food, like Palestinians exist outside of occupation. Like, yes, they are constantly in a state of apartheid and occupation of Israel, but they also live life. So on that note, I want to ask you, like, what is your favorite? Well, that might be kind of hard to pick just one, but like, Palestinian dish or how have you taken traditional Palestinian dishes that might be meatified as you so-called and mm -hmm. make them plant-based to honor your homeland and honor your people? 
Um, well, I think when it comes to like Palestinian food and food culture, I feel like the number one thing I carry from it is hospitality. Um, you know, Palestinians are so hospitable when it comes to food. Um, they will always share, you know, I will literally like give you food, even if it means like I don't get to have food myself because like that's what I was raised to do. You know, my parents always said that. My dad would literally always say like, you feed someone before yourself and that's gonna fill you up. And, um, you know, I think that's one thing that I always carry with me is like this hospitality when it comes to like food and just being welcoming. Um, and then also when it comes to like veganizing or making our foods plant-based, um, some of them already are, you know, which is nice. Um, you know, the salads that we have, um, you know, the dips and stuff, you know, baba ghanoush, um, tabbel, hummus, um, but, you know, my mom has been like really good about that over the, you know, over the years of like veganizing the foods that I like to eat. Um, you know, one of my favorite dishes is maftoul, uh, which is what I had mentioned before. My teta still makes our maftoul for us. She makes like big batches and she gives it to all her kids. Um, and it's just like so, so tasty. It's just such a comforting meal. Um, and uh, the way that Arab food or a lot of Palestinian food is eaten, like the meals, it's like there is a grain or a rice. Um, there's like some sort of, um, you know, like a soup uh, with veggies and then a protein. Um, and so eating maftoul, just like having that little soup with it that you put over it. I don't know, there's just something just so comforting and tasty about it. Um, but as I like dabble into making these foods like vegan, it's a lot of fun, you know, to be able to bring something to life that I feel like I don't get to have anymore, you know, um, not in the same way. So like, for example, there's this one food uh, we have called sfiha. It's like very thinly rolled dough um, that you put like meat and onions in and you season with sumac, um, which sumac is like a very well-known Palestinian um, seasoning it's like tart it's it's like salty and lemony at the same time it's like incredible and has this beautiful beautiful color it's like chef's kiss yeah um and then you roll it up and um you bake them and you have them with like yogurt you know salad whatever um but i made vegan sfiha a few months ago and i was like oh my god this is like pretty good and i was like mom i made this really good thing like you have to try it. I'm going to make it and I'm going to bring it over. And so I made from it and I made like a big batch because I was like, I really feel like they're going to like it and they, they'll keep it in the freezer and just eat it. And my mom loved it. She was like, oh my God, Hadid, this is so good. And my grandma, she was dogging it. She was, she was eating the hell out of it. She was like, dude, this is so good. And I was like, oh God, it's just so nice to be able to share my food, you know, in the way that again, Palestinians love to share like their food to share it the way that I eat it with my family, you know, to have them come around and like enjoy this thing that is like tasty and healthy and still has our culture in it. It's beautiful to be able to reclaim your culture through food, but then also give it your own spin. Yeah, yeah. And that's what's so fun about being in the kitchen and just chefing it up and, you know, just knowing again, like what the people in your life like and enjoy and, you know, creating based on that. But yeah, I mean, Palestinian food is elite. 
And I'm like, for the people who are listening who don't have Palestinian friends, go intentionally make Palestinian friends so that you have exposure to good Palestinian food. Because I promise you are not going to find anything like it at restaurants and stuff. Like, you need, you know, like the grandma in the back, like cooking, you know, like that love that comes through in the food is just different when it's home cooked, especially from Palestinians. They love, love, love to share their food. I can 100% verify that. For those of you who don't know, Hadil and I have been best friends for 16 years at this point. And yeah, there's one thing you can take away from this episode is go get you some homemade Palestinian food. That's what we're going to leave with. Thank you so much for coming on the show, Hadil. I really appreciate all the wisdom you shared and stories. And I think it's really valuable to put faces and families and more than just numbers behind behind all of this. Mm-hmm. I mean, I it was a pleasure to be here and to speak with you and to share the knowledge. And I hope that this information is helpful for the people who are tuning in. And, you know, I hope that you all leave listening to this um, with an open mind and an open heart and an open stomach, of course. <laughs> uh, I'd like to give a special thanks to Hadia Michelle and Zainab Tawil, to whom this series wouldn't be possible without. Their input, ideas, feedback, and support were paramount in putting together a series on Palestine anchored in truth. Hadil and Zainab are two of the proudest Palestinians I know, and I pray we all live to see the day their motherland, Palestine, is free. Thank you to our listeners for your participation. We want to encourage listeners to continue this discussion through our social media pages on Facebook and Instagram. This podcast has been brought to you by Pointcast News and Eliad Productions, a studio for podcasters, musicians, and anyone who has something to say. To listen to any of our podcasts, visit our website at pointcast.news or visit us at Apple Podcasts. Also, be sure to like and follow us on our social media pages at Facebook and Instagram. Join us next time. Until then, be blessed and take care.